0: There's a Taylor Swift song called Betty. And in the song, she tells this, she's telling this story from the perspective of this teenage boy. And for the first time in his life, he's been in love and he's hurt this girl that he's in love with. And because he's hurt her, he doesn't know how to win her back. And the song is about how this boy is just, thinking of things that he could do to get back into her presence, to be acceptable to her. And the pre-chorus of the song says, the worst thing that I ever did was what I did to you. And then the last pre-chorus, you're expecting her to say again, the worst thing that I ever did is what I did to you. But then in the last pre-chorus, it says the only thing I want to do is make it up to you. The only thing I want to do is make it up to you. And I love that song because one, I kind of like Taylor Swift and it reminds me of high school and I don't know. uh, But also, that makes some of you not like me and I understand, (laughs) all right? I understand, it's okay. Um, But it reminds me of high school and it reminds me of of that first time that you liked somebody and you messed it up and you didn't know how to fix it. And and what I love about the song, though, is not only that it reminds me of that, but that's a universal experience. Like, that's not something that you grow out of. We all know what it's like to have made a mess of things and not know what we need to do to fix it. We all know what it's like to have broken a relationship and want to be able to restore it and not know how to approach this person to restore the relationship. We all know what that's like. And that is not the way that the world is supposed to be. The world was never designed for relationships to be broken. The world was never designed for us to experience the pain of heartbreak, the pain of betrayal, the pain of trust being broken. That's not how the world was designed to be. We live in a world that's not like it should be. And these breaks in relationship and the pain and stress, for Christians, we understand that the overall story, the meta-narrative of the whole world, is that God created the whole world And it was good. And he created humans to be in a good, peaceful, joyful, loving relationship with him, with each other, and with the rest of creation. But because of sin, all of those relationships have been broken. That's the story of the Bible. We're introduced to that story at the very beginning in Genesis. The book of Genesis is the first book in the Bible and it starts by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all the stuff up there that you can see and he created all the stuff down here that you can see. And it was all good. And then he created humans, men and women in his image to be able to experience joy and life and love and peace. And then he took the first man and the first woman, and he placed them in a garden. And in that garden, they had access to everything that they could want. And the reason that they had access to everything they could want is because God actually lived in the garden with them. He was there with them. And here's what it says in Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it, And watch over it. He entrusts mankind with caring for this garden where God's presence is. The garden is where you get to experience all of life, free from heartbreak, free from the feeling of the worst thing I ever did. How do we make it up to people, free from all of that drama. But in the garden, the first man and the first woman, rather than listening to the voice of God, they chose to listen to the voice of the serpent. And when they did, sin entered the world. And what was good fell from its original state. The life of love and joy and peace became a life of guilt and shame and fear. And as a result, the man and woman were exiled from the garden. And here's what it says in Genesis chapter three, verse 23. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, he drove the man out, and listen to this, and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. What made the garden so special is that God was there. In the garden, you had access to everything you could want, beauty and life and truth and joy and peace. Life in the garden is a picture of what we all really want, life that's free from drama and free from heartbreak and free from stress and free from pain, free from death. Life in the garden is what we all want, but the garden has been lost. God sent us out of the garden And he stationed a cherubim there to guard it. The cherubim is this angelic being that shows up in the Bible. It's this angelic being that is there stationed outside of the garden. And notice which direction it's facing. It's on the east of the garden. The people left going eastward. So the entrance into the garden is on the east. And there's cherubim there. It's going to be important in a minute. The garden has been lost. And with it, God's presence and a life that we all really want, a life of joy and peace and love. How do we get it back? The only thing I want to do is make it up to you. What this boy in the Taylor Swift song is feeling is what all of us feel. We just want to get back in the garden. How do we make things right in the world? How do we get back in the garden? This is the question underneath all of life's greatest questions. And this is the question that the Bible is designed to answer. How do we as broken sinners living in a broken world, get back to life with God in the garden? That's the question of the Bible. God's answer to that question, He starts with this man named Abraham. And he comes to Abraham and Abraham's son, Isaac, and Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And he says, through you and your family, the blessing of the garden is going to come back to the whole world. All the families of the earth will be able to get back into the garden through you guys. And then Abraham ends up having this big family. His grandson, Jacob, has 12 sons. They grow into this massive family, but they're all slaves in Egypt. That's the story of Exodus. How is this family who's supposed to help everybody get back into the garden, how is this family going to do that if they're slaves in Egypt? Enter God's servant, Moses. God raises up this man named Moses to go and rescue the people out of slavery in Egypt and bring them to Mount Sinai so that he can give them instructions on how to build a tabernacle. Now, why in the world should you care about a tabernacle that was built thousands of years ago? You were maybe you know, hearing the scripture read and you were like, what in the world? Okay, what time is this over? I got to get to you know Costco and lows, and we got stuff to do. Why should you care about a tabernacle? Why is this epic story of God rescuing his people out of Egypt through plagues and the Red Sea and all of this great stuff, why does it end with 15 chapters about a tabernacle? because the story of the Bible is the story of how God is making it possible for broken sinners living in a broken world to get back in the garden. And the tabernacle is a picture of the garden. Let me try to show you that. The tabernacle created a way for God to dwell with his people, even though they were broken sinners. When they arrive at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with them. In Exodus 19, here's what God says. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, and he's about to give them the covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. We talked about that a few weeks ago, but essentially what God is saying is, You, as a nation, are going to be the group of people that I cherish and that I use to invite the whole world back into my presence, just like I promised Abraham. The problem is, they haven't had the covenant for like an hour before they break it. And so then it's like, well, okay, what needs to happen? We saw last week that Moses became a mediator to intercede for the people. They the people were called to this great thing, be a kingdom that helps the whole world come back into God's presence, but they all screwed up. They all deserve to die for their sin. They agreed if we break this covenant, We'll pay for it with our lives. They all agreed to that. They all signed the dotted line. They knew what they were getting into. And then they broke it anyway. And so Moses interceded for them. But when Moses interceded for them, he had to go, you remember, outside of the camp, away from the people, because God could not be with the people. He would be too aware of all the things they were doing wrong. He would have to constantly judge them and punish them. But he wants to be with them, not outside the tent, but with them in the camp, not outside the camp, but inside the camp. How can that be possible? How can broken sinners living in a broken society, living in a broken world, how can they get back to life with God? The tabernacle is the solution to that problem. The tabernacle created a way for God to dwell with his people. So if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 25 through 40 is where we're going to be. What we're going to try to do is give an overview of how the tabernacle was laid out, an overview of the different parts of the tabernacle, and then help you see why any of that should matter at all to you. This is kind of like the Chip and Joanna Gaines section of Exodus, because there's a lot of stuff about furniture and how you're supposed to cut stuff, and well, wouldn't it be better if you put it over there, and there's a lot of that. I'm not really a big fan of those kind of shows, but that's what this is. So, first, let's look at the purpose of this. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. They are to make a sanctuary for me, listen to why, so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. So God is going to give specific instructions for how they're supposed to build this, and notice the reason, so that I may dwell among them. That's the purpose of the tabernacle. God wants to be in the people's presence. Look at chapter 29. Flip over to chapter 29. Look at verse 44 through 46. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Verse 45. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. That's the purpose of the tabernacle. We see that in the text itself. Chapters 25 through 31 are God giving instructions about how they're supposed to build the tabernacle. Chapter 32 through 34 is the people sinning with the golden calf and then Moses interceding for them. And then chapters 35 through 40 is the rest of the book. And that describes how the people actually go about building the tabernacle. So that's the overview of these chapters. I thought... To make this more helpful, that because I've never taught on this before, never really studied this before, it's like a little daunting, to be honest. I thought pictures might help, okay? Um, so throughout each of these things, each of these elements of the tabernacle, we're going to have a picture on the screen for you, okay? The first picture is a diagram that I actually made myself in PowerPoint um, <laughs> to uh, try and show um, how the tabernacle is laid out, okay? And so here's the first picture. Um, and this is to scale, by the way, which you got to, man, you talk about spending too much time on details that don't matter. That's an example of that in my week, okay? So this is to scale. Um, notice that um, on the east of the tabernacle is where the entrance is. It's going to be important in a minute, so remember that. Um, then when you enter, you're inside the courtyard, Okay. The first thing you come to is this altar of burnt offering. The next thing you would come to is the bronze basin. And then there was a big tent. And the tent had two sections inside of it. The first section was called the holy place, and only priests were allowed to go in there. So all the Israelites could come inside the courtyard, but only the priests could go inside the holy place. And then inside the holy place, there was a curtain that created a second room, and that is the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And only the high priest, or the priest who's at the top of the org chart, is allowed to go inside of the most holy place, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, which you can read about in Leviticus chapter 16. Okay, So that's, generally speaking, an overview of the what, uh, what the tabernacle is. Now, um, as we go, here are some pictures to help you, okay? So this is maybe what the tabernacle would have looked like uh, in real life. And this is, it's hard to find like cool looking pictures online if you just Google this. There's a lot of weird word art kind of stuff, but uh, anyway. So this is maybe what it kind of would have looked like. Um, Like I said, there's the courtyard, that's the first thing. Then there's the entrance. Um, We read about that in Exodus chapter 27, verses 13 through 14. And for the width of the courtyard on the east side toward the sunrise, 75 feet, make hangings 22 and a half feet long for one side of the gate, including their three posts and their three Basis. And then he goes into more detail. So there's the east side is the entrance. Then you come in, there's the altar of burnt offering. We read about that in Exodus 27, verses 1 through 3. It says, you are to construct the altar of acacia wood. The altar must be square, seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. It must be four and a half feet high make horns for it on its four corners. The horns are to be of one piece. Overlay it with bronze. Make its pots for removing ashes and its shovels, basins, meat forks, and fire pans. Make all its utensils of bronze. So this altar is where the majority of sacrifices will take place. Um, There will be a sacrifice that takes place morning and night. We read about that in Exodus 29. And then also people could come in and offer sacrifices that the priests would then uh, follow the procedures for on those altars. So that's the first spot, the altar of burnt offering. Then there's the bronze basin. Um, The basin is intended for the priests to wash themselves either before they make a sacrifice on the altar or before they go into the tent, okay? So we read about this in Exodus 30 verses 17 through 20. The Lord spoke to Moses, make a bronze basin for washing and a bronze stand for it. Set it, notice the details, set it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and feet from the basin. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister by burning a food offering to the Lord, they must wash with water so that they will not die. And so the priests have to consecrate themselves before they can do anything. We'll read about that again in a minute. So notice what the altar of burnt offering and what this basin are made out of bronze. As you move inside of the tent, stuff's going to start to be made of gold. It's as if things are getting more holy or more special or more unique as you enter, okay? So then there's the holy place. There's this tent. Here's what the tent would have looked like. And then inside of that, there's the two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. In the holy place, um, and this is uh, this is an overview. It's a little hard to see on the screen, sorry. You can Google this. Um, but there are three things in there. You see that? So straight ahead, there's an altar of incense. And then on the north side, there's a table with bread. And then on the south side, there's a lampstand. And as you read these chapters, each of those is described, and the instructions for how to build it are described, and the way that you're supposed to arrange it are described. So let me try to show you that um, in the passage. So first, on the north side, you've got the table. Um, Exodus 25 verses 23 through 24 is where we read about that. You are to construct a table of acacia wood, 36, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide and 27 inches high. Overlay it with, notice this, pure gold and make a, make a gold molding all around it. So there's this gold table and they're supposed to put this bread called the bread of presence on top of it. We read about this in Exodus 25, verses 29 through 30. You are also to make its plates and cups as well as its pitchers and bowls for pouring drink offerings. Make them out of pure gold. Put the bread of presence on the table before me at all times. So there's this bread that they're supposed to put there at all times. The bread is described in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 6. Here's what it says Take fine flour and bake it into 12 loaves. Each loaf is to be made with four quarts. Arrange them in two rows, six to a row. On the pure gold table before the Lord. So each of these pieces of bread represents one of the tribes of Israel. And the priest would go in and eat at this table on the Sabbath day as a way of representing that God is eating a meal with the people in the holy place. Does that make sense? So there's the table and the bread of presence. Then on the south side, there's the lampstand. This is Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 32. You are to, take a, to make a lampstand lamp out of pure hammered gold. It is to be made of one piece, its base and shaft, its ornamental cups, and its buds and petals. Six branches are to extend from its sides, three branches on the lampstand from one side and three um, branches of the lampstand from the other side. Make it seven lamps, verse 37. Make it seven lamps and set them up so that they illuminate the area in front of it. So there's the lampstand. Now there's this altar of incense where they're going to burn incense constantly. This is Exodus chapter 30, verse one. And then verses five through seven. You are to make an altar for the burning of incense. Make it of acacia wood. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You are to place the altar in front of the curtain by the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony. We'll talk about that in a second, where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on it. He must burn it every morning when he tends the lamps. So that's the holy place. You got, you come in, you got the altar of incense in front of you when you walk in, you've got the bread of the presence, on the north side you got the lamp on the south side. Then separating the holy place from the most holy place is a curtain. And here's where things start to get interesting. In the curtain there's specific design that Moses is supposed to follow. Here's what it says, Exodus chapter 26 verses 31 through 35. This explains the curtain and the layout of the holy place. You are to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen with a design of cherubim worked into it. Hang it on four gold-plated pillars of acacia wood that have gold hooks and that stand on four silver bases. Hang the curtain under the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony there behind the curtain. So the curtain will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place. Verse 34. Put the mercy seat on the ark of testimony in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. Put the table on the north side. So there's the layout. So did you catch what is... Designed into this curtain that's separating the holy place from the most holy place. The cherubim. Now let's think back, OK. What is stationed outside of the garden? The cherubim? And which direction are they are they on? They're on the east side. So to enter back into the garden, you've got to come from the east. How do you enter into the tabernacle? From the east? And separating the holy place from the most holy place is these cherubim. It's as if to go into the most holy place is to go back into the garden. It's to be back in God's actual presence. And then inside that most holy place is two things. There's the Ark of the Covenant. And so we got a picture of Indiana Jones that we'll show you. You know, I'm just kidding. Um, There's the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of that are the Ten Commandments and um, Moses' staff and uh, some of the manna, I think, um, eventually gets put in there. But there's the Ark of the Covenant and there's this mercy seat. Here's how the Ark is to be designed. And the word Ark just means box. Exodus 25, verse 10. They are to make an ark of acacia wood, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it both inside and out. Also make a gold molding all around it. Cast four gold rings for it and place them on its four feet, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They must not be removed from it. Put the tablets of the testimony, talking about the Ten Commandments, that I will give you into the ark. And so it, it's this box. It's got these rings with some poles that go into it so that they can carry the ark. There will be numerous times in the Old Testament where they do carry it. And then on top of that box that's overlaid with gold, there's this thing called a mercy seat. That goes there. Exodus 25 verses 17 through 22 is where we read about this. Put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. Make a mercy seat of pure gold, 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Notice this, verse 18. Make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. At its two ends, make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat. So even though there's two of them, it's all supposed to be constructed as one piece. Verse 20. The cherubim are to have wings spread out above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they're to face one another. The faces of the cherubim should be toward the mercy seat. Verse 21. Set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. So this mercy seat is going to be the place on the day of atonement where the high priest will come in and sprinkle blood. There's all kinds of awesome things we could talk about, the symbolism of that. We just don't have time today. But The thing that matters today is that the cherubim are also made on top of the mercy seat. You got it? So, the tabernacle created a way for God to dwell with his people, even though they were broken sinners. And the tabernacle was designed to be a symbolic return to the garden. In order to enter the tabernacle, you had to have priests. Not any Israelite could go and do all these things in the tabernacle. Instead, they needed priests to go for them. And so in Exodus 29 and 30, there are instructions about the priests. In chapter 28, there's instructions about what kind of clothes the priests are supposed to wear. The book of Leviticus, will get into more detail about exactly what the priests are supposed to do. That's why we have the book of Leviticus so that the priests know how to go into the tabernacle. So, after God gives these instructions, then after the golden calf incident, they all come back together to build this tabernacle. In Exodus 35, it tells us that the people came together. Look at Exodus 35, verse 29. So the Israelites brought a free will offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts prompted them to bring something for all the work that the Lord through Moses had commanded to be done. So they bring their gold, they bring their bronze, they bring their silver, they bring their purple and their fine linen and all that stuff. And they start to make it. And God sends his spirit on some people in particular to help lead them. You can read about that in chapter 35, verses 30 through 33. And so they start to build the tabernacle. And then after they build it, in Exodus 39, verse 32, it says, so all the work for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was finished. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. And then they brought the tabernacle to Moses. So they made it all, made all the stuff for it. And then Moses, look at chapter 39, verse 42. The Israelites had done all the work according to everything the Lord had commanded Moses. Notice this, verse 43. Moses inspected all the work they had accomplished, and they had done just as the Lord commanded. Then Moses blessed them. And this is just a little nod back to the Genesis account. Do you remember after God has made everything? He sa- He inspects it. He says it's good. And then He blesses the people. Genesis 1:28. Now Moses inspects the work that has been done and he blesses the people. And then chapter 40, they actually start to build it all and put it all together. And then chapter 40, verse 34 the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 35. But Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Why can't Moses go in? Because, in order to enter God's presence, even though they've got this place now, the priest still has to be consecrated. And that's why they give the book of Leviticus. And this problem is all resolved in Leviticus chapter 9 when Moses can finally go in to the tabernacle. So, that's an overview. What does that have to do with you? Well, the tabernacle created a way for God to dwell with his people, even though they were broken sinners. The tabernacle was a gift of God to the people, but it was never the ultimate gift that the world needs. In the book of Hebrews, this is kind of interesting Hebrews chapter 9 will make a lot more sense to you if you go and read it now. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant, referring to all this stuff we've just read about, the first covenant also had regulations for a ministry and an earthly sanctuary. Verse 2, for a tabernacle was set up and in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Verse 3, behind the second curtain was a tent called the Most Holy Place. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the Covenant. Verse 5, the cherubim of glory were above the Ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. And I love this. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Verse six, with these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. Verse seven, but the high priest alone enters the second room. And he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. Verse eight, notice this. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. Why can't they go in there all the time? Why couldn't Moses go in? Moses! The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place, the way back into the garden. Had not yet been disclosed. Verse 11 But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. When Jesus is crucified on the cross, his blood spills out. And then three of the gospels tell us, Mark 15, verse 37 Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What curtain is it talking about? What veil is it talking about? It's talking about the curtain that was originally in the tabernacle and then carried over into the temple. The one that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The one that has the cherubim standing there Literally, this curtain that's ripped when Jesus dies has cherubim woven into it. And it's ripped when Jesus dies. Why? Because Jesus is making it possible for broken sinners living in a broken world to get back to life with God in the garden. That is what Jesus is doing. How can we as broken sinners living in a broken world get back to life with God in the garden? Through Jesus, the true and better tabernacle who makes a way for sinners to re-enter God's presence. So how should we respond to this? Well, it's interesting. The writer of Hebrews gives us an idea. Hebrews chapter 10, he says, Therefore in light of all of this stuff. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, the most holy place that only the high priest can go in, even if you're a priest, you don't get to go into. The writer of Hebrews says, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated a new and a living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Jesus's flesh is now the only thing. Jesus himself is now the only thing dividing sinners from being back in the garden. Jesus himself is the only thing standing between you as a sinner, being fully accepted by God. Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's what we should do. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. What is he saying? He's saying, take advantage of the fact that you can enter the garden now. You can come back to God now. You feel like a complete worthless sinner because you get bored listening to sermons about the tabernacle. You feel like a complete worthless sinner because of something you smoked last night or something you drank last night. You feel like a complete worthless sinner because of an addiction that you can't get over. You feel like a complete and worthless sinner because of your unfaithfulness to your spouse. You feel like a complete worthless sinner because of your addiction to pornography. Come boldly into the sanctuary because there is a high priest for you, Come boldly into the sanctuary. You can come back into the garden. Why? Not because of you, not because you're good. You're a broken sinner living in a broken world, but there is access to the garden now. There is access back to God and it's come through Jesus. So come, he says, so if we've got this opportunity, then let us draw near, let us come close. Don't stay away and act like church is just for church and holy people. Come in come receive Jesus. Have your heart clean. How do you do that? It's very simple. You simply confess, you know what? I am a sinner. I don't have to hide that and pretend anymore. And then you confess that Jesus is the high priest I need. Jesus is the one who can bring me back in. Confess that you're a sinner. Confess that Jesus is your Savior. Trust him. Draw near to God through faith in Jesus. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And then verse 24. Isn't this interesting that he makes this the next application of this? And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Because Jesus is the new tabernacle and the new curtain and the new high priest and the new sacrifice, you should draw near. And we who have drawn near should come together to promote love and good works. We should encourage one another, and that requires us not neglecting to be together. We should just be together and encourage each other. When you come to church on a Sunday, what if you thought about it like this. You are coming to help build a house where people can meet with God. Not a literal house, but a spiritual house where people can meet with God. What if you showed up early and you walked around to greet people and encourage them and ask them how God is working in their life? What if after the service, rather than rushing off to what you got to do, what if You didn't neglect to promote love and good works by sticking around and checking in with people and praying for people. What if you chose to actually get involved in somebody's life beyond Sunday and you invited somebody over for lunch today? Or, okay, you've already got plans, won't work. So you exchange numbers with somebody and you intentionally start to take an interest in the spiritual growth of others. Why? Because you have... Come into the sanctuary and now we as the church get to build a sanctuary ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit. Listen to 1 Peter chapter two, verse five. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is what the church is called to do. We're gonna talk more about what that looks like and what that means the Sunday after Easter when we start a new series called The Church. Until then, let me pray for you and let's respond to God in worship. Father, we praise you for being a God who wants to dwell with us. Even when we're broken sinners, you don't abandon us, but you come towards us. We can rightly call you Emmanuel, God with us because you have come towards us. So God, as we think about you now, we want to think about you highly exalted in your heavenly temple. And God, we also want to draw near. We don't have to stand away because there is a substitute for sinners. His name is Jesus and he is now highly exalted. And someday he will return for the whole earth. And God, we long for that day. We long to be back in the garden. God, someday when Jesus returns, when you send him back, he will make all things right and he will renew the garden. God, we praise you for that. God, until then, help us to be people of love and good works who do not neglect gathering together. Would we be witnesses of this? Here and in South King County, and around the world. It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?